You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. You're a guest here today. Welcome. Glad to see you. And it's great to see everyone else here today as well, especially because I may not see you here next week since um, today's subject is on judgment. Um, I actually... I actually had a meeting with some pastors this week, and I told them to expect higher attendance in their churches next Sunday because of the sermon topic this week. Um, I, I'm kidding, of course. I, I know you guys aren't that fickle and that this church can handle hard topics, um, which, is, uh, which is good. So, um, and, and of course, as we've learned from King Nebuchadnezzar when we were studying Daniel 4, it's important to come before God and, and his word and his truth with humility and open hearts. So... Um, I pray that we would have this approach, just as we've been doing as we've been studying through Daniel and our series on exiles. And uh, I also hope that we walk away this morning understanding both the seriousness and the necessity of judgment. But most importantly, that we'll learn that God's judgment over sin and, and evil, especially over arrogant and ungodly empires in this world, is actually good news. This is good news for us. Um, Joshua Ryan Butler, an author and pastor, writes, God will judge empire. This is the hope of the world. If, if God's kingdom is to come, our empires must go. If God is to rule on earth as in heaven, then our attempts to rule without him must be put away. God stands against Babylon because God stands for his world. God stands against Babylon because God stands for his world. So we've got to have that perspective this morning, that righteous judgment, of course, is all about justice, and justice is good. We actually long for it. Um, the earth groans for it, and we hope for it. Uh, but as Pastor Blair equipped to me this week, <clears throat> excuse me, getting people to positively view judgment is like getting your kids to like vegetables, right? I, I agree with him. Uh, it may have a gross texture or flavor, but in the end, it's what we need to live. So on that note, if, if you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to be continuing in Daniel chapter 5. We started this passage last week, um, so I'm just going to do a quick overview of uh, the first half, and then we'll dig more into the, the last half of the passage this morning. So, as we learned last week, if you were here last week, this passage takes place about 23 years and four kings after the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. And according to history, the Medo-Persian Empire has been slaughtering and burning their way through all of Mesopotamia and are most likely besieging the city of Babylon itself at the time of this passage. And, and I just want to make it, make it clear what it means by besieging. Uh, because a lot of us, when we think of besieging a city, we think of, you know, um, Helm's Deep and Lord of the Rings, right? Where like this constant attacking and ladders are going up the walls and there's, there's slaughtering and blood and everything. But, but really, uh, what besieging, um, what it was usually like back in the day was that an ar- a giant army, a huge force would, would march up to a city, surround it, and then they would put up to some tents and they would sleep in their tents for months <laughs> and, and until the people in the city uh, would starve or be or surrender or become too weak to fight, and at that point, that's when they would attack the city. So this could take months or even years to besiege a city, depending on the city's resources and access to water and food and all of that. 
Um, so anyways, a young and arrogant man named Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, it doesn't matter how you say it, really. Um, he's, he's acting right now as the king regent of Babylon, of the city of Babylon, in place of his father, King Nabonidus. And he decides to throw a great feast. And there's more going on than just a feast, as we learned last time. It's, um, it's a whole night of, you know, you can probably imagine. Anyways, and this is most likely to lift the spirits of his nobles and by putting on a show of confidence and, and pleasure while their city is being besieged. Um, so he wants to show them he's not afraid that, you know, he's trusting his, his gods and his idols to, to save them and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and he doesn't know, of course, that this is going to be the last night of his life. Anyways, as the party progresses, he decides to call out the gold and silver vessels from the treasury house. And, and these had been taken almost 60 to 70 years earlier from the temple of Jerusalem in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar as a show of authority over Judah's God. So they, you know, they conquered Jerusalem and they take the stuff from the temple and they put it in there in the temples of their gods to say, haha, our gods are better than your gods, right? That's what's going on. So it's not clear, but these holy vessels could have been taken at the same time Daniel and his friends were given as tributes in 605 BCE and taken into exile. Or they could have been taken when the Babylonians uh, ultimately sacked and destroyed the temple of God in 586 BCE after King King Nebuchadnezzar's army had attacked Jerusalem again. And this was due to the treachery and betrayal of the Babylonians, Babylon's puppet king of Jerusalem, King Zedekiah. King Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah on the throne, and Zedekiah said, I don't like you anymore, I'm not going to pay tribute, and then the Babylonians destroyed the city and the temple in retaliation. So it doesn't matter when they were taken, either way we need to understand that these vessels from the temple had been consecrated for God, and ultimately then represented his presence and his holiness. So these vessels are significant. But Belshazzar, in his arrogance and his drunkenness, seems to want to make a show of his authority and his power. And so he decides to use them to drink wine out of. And basically he takes what's been consecrated as holy and he uses it to worship his false idols of wood, stone, gold, and silver. And so this is what happens next. We're going to catch up here. Daniel 5, 5 to 10. This is what happens next. So, at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners, He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. And remember, he says third highest position because his dad is the actual king, right? And he's king regent, so he's second in command. So he's saying, whoever does this can be right underneath me. That's the third highest position, right? So all the king's wise men came in. But none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. And then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. 
Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. So quickly to summarize what's going on here, Belshazzar's peeing his pants <laughs> and uh, shaking in his boots as the fingers of a hand show up out of nowhere to write a message on the wall in the brightest place in the room for all to see. And, you know, as expected, this bizarre display is, is a moment of fear and humiliation for him. He's confused and he's, and he's freaking out, right? Uh, I have a picture for all you art enthusiasts, a painting by Rembrandt, if you wanted to throw that up there. Can you see that? Yeah. So that's uh, Rembrandt's depiction of what's going on there. So you can kind of get a little image there. Um, Anyway, so he's, he's freaking out about these words on the wall, and so he calls in his mediums and his wise men to tell him what it means, but as per usual, they can't. So in comes the queen, and the queen is probably actually his mom or his grandmother, so she's more of the queen mother. Anyways, who, whoever she is, she comes in as the, this, this helicopter parent to, to calm her entitled and, and arrogant precious king down. You know, oh, no one, there, there, no one can hurt or humiliate my precious boy, right? Uh, and then she subsequently becomes a voice of wisdom as she offers him a solution to his problem. So then we get Daniel 5, 11 to 12. She says to Daniel, with some wisdom here, she says, there is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. That's how they always describe Daniel. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. I just want to quickly mention, notice how they're calling him Daniel now, and not by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. That's significant, because in the last chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar, upon Finding faith in God, he, he had actually started calling Daniel by his Jewish name again in his testimony. And that seems to have stuck. So people are calling him Daniel now, and, she, and the queen mother has to remind him, remember his name used to be Belteshazzar? Kind of like your name, Belshazzar, right? Um, and so it also seems like Daniel, who's probably in his 80s by this time, it seems like he's, he's kind of been forgotten. It's only the queen mother who, who remembers uh, the stuff about Daniel. Uh, so she has to remind him. And on another, name, on another level, his, his name is actually symbolic for this story because the name Daniel means God. Did I drop out? The name Daniel means God is my judge. Daniel means God is my judge. And it's fitting because both prideful kings eventually learned that God is the judge, that God is their judge. Though, in opposite ways, right? King Nebuchadnezzar finds grace as he humbly surrenders to God and proclaims God as, as the sovereign, holy one, right? And the just judge, um, while the other, as we'll learn today, receives God's judgment as destruction because he hardens his heart against God and chooses to look to himself and trust in his idols instead. And I think the author of Daniel actually 
wants the reader to see the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, which is, which is also why their stories are written one after the other in the book of Daniel. In fact, the events described for us later in chapter 7 and 8 in Daniel actually take place before chapters 5 and 6. This is chronologically out of order. And, and this is a pretty common literary device back then to group or pattern stories and events uh, by subject matter rather than to do it chronologically. And so we might be reading our Bible and be like, wait, this happened before this that I just read and we're all kind of, kind of confused. But they're doing this on purpose because to them, the goal is, is less about when something happened, unless it's, unless it's specifically significant to the story. So it's less about when something happened and was more about making sure the reader gets to the point and the purpose of why it happened. That's what they want us to learn. They want the reader to know why it happened and what's going on and the purpose and and who God is in it, right? And so it's not hard to surmise then that in placing chapters 4 and 5 together, uh, the author's purpose is for the reader to compare and contrast the two prideful kings and how God dealt with them. Anyways, King Belshazzar, he takes the queen mother's advice and he calls in Daniel. And so we're going to read Daniel 5, 13 to 31 now, the rest of the passage. Now that we know what's going on. All right, so it says, Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor the king brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. So Daniel's not interested in, in power or prestige, right? He says, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted, and his spirit became arrogant. He was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like a cattle, and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drink wine from them, you praise the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. 
But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Meany means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. And Paris means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. But that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. All right. Some of you may have heard on uh, February 24th, just a couple days ago, a man named Harvey Weinstein was finally convicted and found guilty of two charges of felony sex crimes, including rape. And uh, for those of you who don't know who this guy is, he's a very wealthy and successful movie producer in Hollywood. He's probably produced some of your favorite films. Anyways, many actresses and, and, and women in and around the movie industry had started to come forward with sexual allegations against him. Uh, basically, he'd been using his position of authority to take advantage of these women as if he was untouchable, hiding behind his wealth and his power and his, his positional influence. But finally, as we learned this week, he is an untouchable. The New York Times wrote about the trial and said, For many, the trial was a crucial test in the effort to hold powerful men accountable for sexual harassment in the workplace. So, though he was, wasn't actually convicted of, of, with the more serious offenses of sexual assault, still, this judgment against him is, is a judgment that's worth celebrating, Right? This, and this story is a reminder of how good and necessary judgment is. And in this case, justice has been served. Deserved judgment has been passed down on an evil man. And now all the women, women who were hurt and hoping for him to be convicted can now have some solace in knowing that he's going to pay for what he did. In the same vein, he can no longer hurt any more women in the future as he rots in prison. And ultimately, this means that other men with authority and power need to think twice before they hurt others, especially women, right? This is a strong message for those who think that they're untouchable or safe behind their, their arrogance and entitlement. And now the judge who's overseeing the trial has the job of, of doling out the sentence uh, of prison time, which he'll announce in a couple of weeks. Of course, we all know that this is the job of a judge, right? To properly weigh the, the evidence and, and weigh the crimes and then deal out the appropriate sentence to see that justice is brought down on the guilty in order to protect or bring justice to the innocent. And this is, this is what we hope for, right? I don't think anyone would say, oh, I hope the judge lets him, lets him go, right? This is what we hope for, because on the flip side, we'll definitely be horrified and outraged if, if a just judgment isn't given to Harvey Weinstein. And in the same way, this is what's happening in the passage we read this morning. A just judgment is being passed on a man who's abused the authority that's been given to him by God. 
In fact, Belshazzar's judgment is even written on the wall for all to see precisely because it's not only for him, but also for the whole empire of Babylon as well. And honestly, I I can't explain what's happening with the fingers on the wall, right? It's weird. Like I said last week, we we can all agree. Whatever's happening there is kind of weird. And I can definitely understand why it would be a scary experience. I'd probably have wet my pants too. Um, In the same vein, I don't really know whose fingers they were. Maybe it was a messenger of God. I, I don't know. But what we do know is that it's clearly a message of judgment from God. And as I mentioned earlier, many people get squirrely or offended when the subject of God's judgment is brought up. Um, and then we turn around and we judge God for, being, for judging. It's pretty neat how we do that. <laughs> but um, I think we're, we're especially afraid or, or concerned or even under the opinion that God might judge incorrectly or unfairly. Right? And so before we go any further, we, we have to understand that unlike the judges of our judicial system who can and do make mistakes, who don't have all the evidence in front of them all the time, right? we need to understand that God is a just and perfect judge. And as the one God and creator, he's the only rightful and worthy judge who has all the evidence and who not only weighs our actions, but also knows the state of our heart. As the Lord says in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so he's a just judge. And this is what he's finally bringing upon Babylon and King Belshazzar. And on that end, he, uh, four simple words of his judgment are written on the wall, and it's most likely in Aramaic. Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parson. Sometimes referred to as Paris, as we saw in the chapter, but Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parson. Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parson. That's kind of catchy, right? I'm surprised it hasn't ever been made into a nursery rhyme, like London Bridge is Falling Down, or Ring Around the Rosie, or Eeny, Meeny, Miny, Moe, right? Most of those are weird and based on death and horrible situations, right? Like, so... You know, maybe it could go something like this. Meeny, meeny, tickle and parson, the prideful king whose heart was hardened. Now all Babylon has fallen in Sheol with no more pardon. Weep and gnash their teeth in arson. Meeny, meeny, tickle and parson. Huh? Thank you. I, I worked on that for hours. I, I didn't do any research on the. No, I'm just kidding. I, and I, I can imagine kids singing that on the playground, right? You know, they're all in a circle. They don't, they don't know what they're singing. Uh, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> let's forget that ever happened. Uh, accor- according to my commentaries, um, one theory of how to translate these three words is that they're particular measures of weight. But uh, the most likely direct translation of these words, if read as verbs, would be numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, weighed, divided. And this coincides with uh, the interpretation that Daniel gives him, right? Uh, So he starts with meaning, and he says that this means that God has numbered the days of Babylon and brought it to an end. Notice how it says meaning twice. So repetition was a literary device used in those days to emphasize something as, as doubly important. 
And, and sometimes we continue that tradition in our worship songs, right? We'll, we'll say something uh, with repetition to emphasize its importance, right? Uh, but in this case, there, there seems to be more to it than just an emphasis. And um, I'll get to that in, in a bit. Um, right? It's almost as if Babylon was numbered twice, or rather for two reasons. But basically, though, it, overall, it means their days are up, right? The empire of Babylon is finished. This is most likely where the expression, your days are numbered, comes from. Anyways, the next word on the wall then explains the reason that their days are numbers, the reason for God's judgment over Belshazzar and Babylon, and that's tekel. And according to Daniel, this means Belshazzar has been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Or in other words, the jury has deliberated the evidence according to the law of God and has found him guilty. And what's he guilty of? Well, Daniel tells him. Actually, it's more like he lays into him and rebukes him when he says that, that Belshazzar, knowing full well that his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, was humbled by God until, until he acknowledged him as the Most High God, this means that Belshazzar should have known better as well. This, he's saying that he's without excuse for his sin and pride. He's without excuse for his sin and pride because he's heard and known about the testimony of the former king. But yet, even with that knowledge, he didn't humble himself before God. In fact, not only did he choose in his arrogance to abuse his power and authority and his drunken debauchery and adultery, bringing his kingdom to the brink of ruin, he also chose to praise his idols and himself instead of God and over and above God. And he did it by profaning the vessels of God's temple. So we see he's guilty in both his actions and his deeds, and in his heart, right? And this is why I think Babylon's numbered twice, for their sinful deeds and for their adultery. They're guilty in both spirit and flesh. Uh, Ian, Ian M. Duguid writes, Belshazzar should have learned from Nebuchadnezzar's experience and humbled himself as well. Instead, although Belshazzar knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he had still exalted himself against the Lord, sacrilegiously profaning the temple vessels from Jerusalem by using them in an idolatrous act of worship. He had praised his powerless idols while neglecting the one true God who gave him his very life breath. So the point Daniel says is that this should have been enough to curb his pride and adultery. But yet he refused to repent. And just quickly, this is a reminder for us and a warning for us that anyone who's heard the testimony of the gospel of Christ and then denies it like Belshazzar is then without excuse for their sin and pride. On the same note, Belshazzar also represents everything that Babylon is, both the city and the archetype. It's a kingdom and a culture that sets itself up against God, right? Denies its, its truths, looks for autonomy, kind of like the culture we're living in right now. And, and this godless, self-edifying and prideful imagery actually stretches all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis, right? When humans in rebellion against God tried to get to heaven and make a name for themselves apart from him. And like them, the irony in this story this morning is that in trying to set himself up apart from God 
and even as better than God through profaning the temple vessels with his wine and idolatry, Belshazzar actually invites the very presence of God to join them. He's like, bring those vessels in here. He's inviting the presence of God to join them. But not in a good way, for, for them at least. As Mark Sayers writes, to the contrite of heart, the humble, the meek in spirit, God's presence is received as waves of love. Yet for the proud, the rebellious, the autonomous, the individuals and systems that wish to continue Adam and Eve's rebellion, to reanimate the project of Babylon, to reach for progress without God's presence, for such people and systems, those same waves of love that are God's presence are experienced as judgment. And so we can't escape God's presence, right? But depending on your side of the scale... We all experience it differently, either in mercy and love or in judgment. We see this throughout Scripture. We also see that contrast again between King Nebuchadnezzar, who from a place of humility and fear, the fear of the Lord, found and experienced God's presence as something to rejoice in, as grace and love compared to King Belshazzar, who in his arrogance and idolatry experiences God's presence as righteous judgment and something to be afraid of. And on that note, as a result of his sin then, this is, this is his sentence. Parson, the word parson. Which according to Daniel, meant that his kingdom would fall and be split between the Medes and Persians. And we know that historically that is... What happens? His kingdom would fall and be split between the Medes and Persians. As the Bible says, the wages of sin is death for individuals and for empires. In one fell swoop, Babylon was weighed on the balance of justice and found wanting. And just like that, the once powerful empire was done, brought to nothing under the just and righteous judgment of God. And Belshazzar couldn't even, even buy his way into God's favor by showering expensive gifts on Daniel and making him third in command. Right? That was all empty. And it was for nothing because he would die later that evening and Babylon would be taken over by the Medes and Persians, just as it said. But while this was bad news for Belshazzar, who brought it on himself because he refused to repent, this was actually extremely good news for the exiles there who had been waiting and hoping for this day to come. This was like the death of Hitler and the destruction of Nazi Germany for them. So for Babylon, God's presence came as judgment. But for God's people within Babylon, God's presence came as an act of liberation from exile and an end to God's judgment over them for their own past idolatry and sin. In fact, in, in, just one, one year, in just one year from this event, just over one year from this event, many Judean exiles would be given permission to, to return to Jerusalem. And then they would begin rebuilding the temple of God. So this was the beginning of the end of their exile. For the exiles, the destruction of Babylon was the answer to prophecy that they'd been waiting for and hoping for. 
Some were prophecies that had even been spoken before Babylon was even an empire. For example, around, around 200 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke God's judgment over Babylon, which is recorded in Isaiah 13. And it says that in there that God would raise up nations who will work together to bring destruction on Babylon. It says they would bring it to ruin and bring down the arrogant by sending the Medes against them. So over almost 200 years before that, Isaiah is saying the Medes are going to take over Babylon and destroy Babylon. It says in verse 19 specifically, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. And then in Jeremiah, judgment is also prophesied against Babylon in chapters 50 and 51. For example, in Jeremiah 50, verses 8 to 9, it says, Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. And in Jeremiah 51.11, it says, Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it, for that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. And then you might also remember when we were studying through Daniel chapter 2, that King Nebuchadnezzar himself received a, a, a vision from God of the statue, symbolizing that Babylon would fall to another empire. And Daniel himself, in the third year of King Belshazzar, also received uh, a similar vision from God, and this is recorded in Daniel 8, specifically interpreted that the Medes and Persians would bring down the empire of Babylon. So these prophecies were their hope, right? They were waiting for this. This is the end of their exile, and now it had come to pass. And so as it says in Jeremiah 51, 8 to 10, this is the, what their reaction will be and, and was. And it says, Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. So forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. And you see how that tower of Babel is being turned around on them. For her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted even up even to the skies. And it says, the Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. So again, the judgment of sinful and corrupt Babylon was Judah's vindication and redemption from exile. Babylon had a chance to repent and heal, but they didn't. And therefore now God's people get to return to Zion and proclaim his name again. This was God's promise and his plan for them. His judgment over Babylon was their hope. And ultimately, this, this also proved to them and to us that God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to judge evil and free his people from exile. So in, in, in the same way, we've been talking about how we're exiles and, and, and as, as Christians in this world, as exiles of the kingdom of God living in this world, right? And so in the same way, this is our sure hope as well. As, as we look around the world and, and we see the corruption, right? We see the Harvey Weinsteins. 
We see the sin, we see the arrogance, we see the sexual immorality, we see the wars, we see the idolatry of wealth and of the self, as, as we see rulers uh, being corrupted and abusing their power, as, as, as we see injustice and grotesque acts of violence and greed and human trafficking and poverty, as we watch our society attempt to thrive while, while pushing God to the edges, eager for more autonomy, only to see it cause an increase in anxiety and crime and depression and drug use and consumerism and hopelessness. And as we see all of this, and therefore long and grown with all of creation to be freed from this exile, this is our hope. God's final judgment against all that is evil, against Babylon, is our hope. That one day all injustices will be made right. That one day all things evil, earthly and spiritual, will be crushed under the feet of Jesus so God's kingdom can come in full. When all things are made new. When we're redeemed spiritually and physically. Right? When there'll be no more weeping or pain or sorrow, but glorious and eternal life in the presence of God. I have another quote here from Joshua Ryan Butler. It's really long, but I couldn't, it's one of those ones that I just couldn't leave anything out. So I'm, I'm just going to read this to you. I, I just love how he puts this. I'm just going to read this to you. It says, Babylon's ancient tower stormed the heavens, declaring war on the kingdom of God. Ironically, the higher her tower walls climbed, the more distant she grew from God. Similarly, we have sought to rule the earth on our own. And the higher our global walls climb, the more distant God seems to appear. As Western civilization has expanded throughout the modern era, God has increasingly been pushed out of public life. This is the modern world we have made. A world disenchanted with God. A world enchanted with ourselves. If we are to rule the earth on our own, God must go. If the empire is to reign unchallenged, the kingdom must be pushed away. If our civilization is to make a name for ourselves, the one who names us must be silenced. Ironically, the more our skyscraping towers penetrate the heavens, the more distant God becomes. But God is patient, more patient than we are, but his patience will not last forever. For a time, God will allow us to gild the walls of our exilic empire higher and higher, feeding our craving for a world without him. But a time will come when our sins have reached their full measure, when the outcry has become too great in his ears, when God arises to end the exile and wage holy war on Babylon to bring his kingdom come. The end of Babylon is the hope of the world. It marks not simply an end, but a beginning, the inauguration of God's kingdom come in fullness on earth as it is in heaven. I, was, I get shivers up my spine when I read that. I, read, I remember reading that like three years ago in his book, and it just... And he's not making this up either. The, the, the judgment of Babylon is a promise for us, which we can find throughout the New Testament, specifically in the book of Revelation multiple times, where the Apostle John uses Babylon as an archetypical image of the sinful and arrogant kingdoms and cultures, and of course the satanic spiritual powers behind them who have denied the truth and set themselves up against God at the end of days, in our days. 
For example, about Babylon, an angel declares victoriously in Revelation 14, verse 8, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So they're using that imagery of the wine, drinking of the wine of the passion of her immorality. So like God's people during Belshazzar's time, we also hope in God's judgment over Babylon. Because in order to bring the kingdom, anything that stands against it must be removed. And notice how that verse says fallen twice. We talked about repetition, just like it says meanie twice. How can it follow or be numbered twice? Well, a little tidbit of info for you here. In the Garden of Eden, God tells Adam and Eve that if they eat of the tree of a knowledge of good and evil, that they will surely die. Right? And we read that and we think, well, they didn't die. God's a liar. Well, that's because the word surely probably shouldn't be there. Um, According to some scholars, an actual interpretation of that passage is that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in dying, they will die. Or they will die, die. See that repetition? That repetition is replaced by surely in our English translations. But it actually says, in dying, you will die. The implication being that they will die or that they will fall twice. The first death being a spiritual one, right? Their hearts were hardened in sin and they were cast out of God's presence, out of the garden, which eventually leads to the second, a physical and eternal death. As they're dying spiritually, they die physically. In dying, they will die. The judgment for their sin falls on both spirit and flesh. This is the same judgment that we see for fallen, fallen Babylon. But according to the word of God, Let's, let's not just point fingers. Let's not forget that this is every human being's deserved judgment as well. As it says in Romans, no one is righteous, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. So what happens when we're brought before God in judgment like Belshazzar was? Because we will. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. On our own, this doesn't sound very good, right? Because we're all deserving of the same fate and judgment of Belshazzar. Because we've all partaken of the wine of Babylon's immorality and profaned the name of God. In both deed and in our heart. And as a just and righteous judge, God can't just let sin go unpunished. In the same way that the judge presiding over Weinstein's trial can't just let him off scot-free. Right? That would be unjust and evil. And so that's why God, as God promises Daniel in chapter 7, he's actually made a way to both punish sin while actually also making sure that we're vindicated, forgiven, and set free from the punishment and judgment that we deserve. That's why God gave us Jesus, his one and only begotten son, who willingly came to us in the form of man, humbled himself, lived a perfect life, and then took the full weight of the punishment of our sin upon himself at the cross as our perfect sacrifice. He stood in our place. He took the judgment for us. As it says in Hebrews 9, 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for, a, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. So this is how God is both just and merciful in his judgment for our sin, right? By taking the weight of our judgment upon himself, and then conquering the power of death in his resurrection, the sin, our sin debt is paid, and death has now lost its sting. And because Jesus did this, God then exalted him and seated him at his right hand, where, where he now has the sole right to judge the living and the dead. Our redemption, our salvation, is in Jesus' hands. And this is the good news. This is the good news. That those who now believe in his name by faith, can be forgiven of their sin and covered in his righteousness. This is by his work alone. It's free. This is grace. And we can be filled by his spirit as his living temples and adopted into citizens and heirs of God's kingdom. Saved from the judgment we deserve because Christ stood in our place. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, all those who follow Christ can now eagerly await his second coming with the hope of eternal salvation and with anticipation, not with fear, of his final judgment over Babylon. When he comes to judge the earth in righteousness, we can look forward to that, knowing that it's the end of our exile. It's the hope of the world. And again, on that note, Joshua Butler writes, Around the world, the church waits in exile for the coming of God's kingdom. All around the world, Jesus' followers live in the midst of global Babylon, crying out to God from insider walls. They want intimacy with God, not distance. Communion with God, not independence. Worship of God, not autonomy. They want God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven. They want God to come and end the exile. Jesus tells his disciples in, in Luke 5 that those who have turned their hearts to him will be made new. That will become like new wineskins filled with new wine. Will become like new wineskins and filled with new wine. That will no longer desire or drink of the old wine that Belshazzar served, right? The, the, the wine of Babylon's pride and deception and immorality as our old sinful bodies did, but rather he offers us the new wine of his cleansing blood poured into those who have been saved and made new by his grace. In other words, as new wineskins, we get to experience God's presence as waves of love and grace, not as judgment. And this is what Jesus offers and, and calls us to remember as we come to his table and enjoy communion with him. John 6, 54 to 55, Jesus says, The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He's not talking about cannibalism here. He's talking about receiving the perfect work of the cross, receiving what he has done for us, receiving his grace and his mercy. 